0: This podcast is offered to you by Zen Center North Shore on the web at www.zencenternorthshore.org. This program is made possible by donations from listeners like you. Good
1: morning. Thank you for being here with whatever is up for you today, whatever's in your mind, in your brain, in your heart, however you're feeling, however your life is going. Thank you for being here. I was thinking um, as I was watching you, chanting or listening anyway to the Heart Sutra, I was thinking about how years ago, <laughs> A woman who had been practicing with the Marblehead Sense Center um, told me that she felt conned. (laughs) She felt like she was being conned (laughs) by me. And and she and I have maintained a friendship. And I've brought this up over the years. And she's always really embarrassed whenever I bring it up. I mean, there's, there's pain. And there's, you know, like, oh, you know, you don't want to con anybody. But it's kind of funny at the same time, too. It's like, what were you expecting? (laughs) What do we think a Zen center is? What do we think Zen practice is? Who do we think we are when we show up in a place like this? Who do you think I am? What do you think a Zen priest is? Welcome, Ben. (laughs) I'm glad you came back. I was thinking about you. So you know, I just get the sense I'm with you. I am with you. I know religion has become a dirty word, you know, and it's really unfortunate. And I, I, I've debated this for years and years now. I am a religious figure. I'm a I'm a Zen priest. I am part of that whole thing we call religion. And so, how do I square this being? Not square. <laughs> I don't see myself as square. Maybe the older I get, the squarer I get. But at any rate, I, I remember, I'm just this is a riff here, but I remember, um, and I do have notes, so I will get back to the point. <laughs> but I do remember back in when was it? It was like the early 90s, that the civil war in El Salvador was still happening. And I had gone there on a delegation of accompaniment. From Washington, D.C. I was a dancer. I was in the modern dance scene. It was cool. It was like, yeah. And I speak Spanish. And I, I had gone to a college where a Jesuit university, Georgetown, which is very political and very involved, you know, at the heart of a lot of stuff. Global politics, good and not so good. At any rate, um, I had this whole background. I had studied with one of the Jesuits who replaced one of the Jesuits, one of the rectors of the University of Central America um, when they were murdered in 1989. I graduated from Georgetown in 88. I took this class with Father Byrne in the spring. It was the spring before I graduated. And then the following year, the Jesuits were murdered. And he was one of the replacements. So the class that I had taken with him was Catholic Church and Politics in Latin America. Um, yeah, all of this is to say that with this background, and this background of that experience at Georgetown, speaking Spanish, being a dancer, a choreographer, modern dance, you know, super hip scene, as hip as it can be in Washington, D.C., I went to El Salvador and I went with Pastors for Peace. (laughs) I didn't know I was going with a bunch of nuns and priests. You know, I thought I was just doing like a, you know, hasta la victoria siempre kind of thing, you know, just, I don't know, separate from religion. And I remember feeling squeamish like around the nuns, like that's not me. I've never seen myself as a nun. However, when I encountered San Francisco Zen Center in Zen practice, I can't necessarily say that it was the priests at San Francisco Zen Center who I wanted to be like. I can't necessarily say exactly like that, but there was something about lineage and the accountability over the centuries and even the millennia, we can say that had deep appeal. And then also there's so much to say around this, but also that the teachers I did encounter, I saw as continuing to study, continuing to be students. So these were trustworthy aspects. In addition to this being a practice, this is religious practice. It's engaged faith. Our eyes are open. This is very important when we're sitting It may not happen 100% of the time, but we sit with our eyes open. This is not about believing anything that anybody tells you. Even Shakyamuni Buddha said that. And I'm saying that to you. Don't believe what I'm telling you. I'm only here to ask you to engage and to engage with something specific like bowing and chanting. What I'm talking about today is bowing. And I wanna have the chance, I see this as a creative opportunity to share, like, why is it that I, a human being, who still thinks herself to be pretty hip, am a religious person (laughs) and not, so I, I know I need to clarify, it is not religion as we've come to see these days, unfortunately, nothing to do with dogma. Nothing to do with fundamentalism. Everything to do with specificity. Practicing something specific at a specific time with specific humans. You, even you, Ben, you're here for the first time. You're a specific person. (laughs) You showed up at 8.30. You got here a few minutes early and maybe got a little freaked out. But God bless you. You came back. (laughs) Uh, So, The specificity of doing something with others, not when you feel like it, but when the schedule says, this is what we're doing. This for me is totally freeing. This is why I'm here. And this is the most important thing we do is we have a fixed schedule with fixed offerings so that we ourselves won't be fixed because we aren't, (laughs) we can't be fixed. But we go around thinking that we are, that we are actually cardboard cutouts. This is Joan, this is Seitetsu, this is Chris. (laughs) I love it when you surprise me because I feel the peel of freedom, (laughs) the ringing of, oh, one person leapt, leaped out of their fixed view of themselves. How is it that a guy like Chris puts his hands in gashot? That's kind of cool. Yeah. It's kind of amazing. And so this con, this conning, you know, I think it's, I bring this up and I laugh and I bring it up with my friend because I think it's really important to own whatever it is that we're feeling, you know, Um, and the more you practice and the more you do things like this, the more hypocritical you might feel because you might really think of yourself. Darlene used to say this. Darlene said (laughs) she went to a, she went to a, um, high school reunion. It was like, I don't know, a 30 or 40 or something year reunion. And she said, um, I can't remember exactly what it was, but it was something like, they may think I'm the same old asshole, but I know. (laughs) You know? Like, the hypocrisy might be that when we do this, and when we bow, and when we chant the Heart Sutra, we're supposed to be some kind of lofty beings. What do you think enlightenment is? Here's, I just want to name, I'm feeling like a Baptist right now. (laughs) maybe the connection between me and Reverend Andre who is a Baptist minister Um, so when I talk about this conning you know in hypocrisy this is just about and, and we chant it all the time in the Zen school the heart sutra is about this I'm talking about being free from duality being free from the tyranny of thinking that the sacred is somewhere out there that you need to get to, and you need to become a good person who never hurts anybody anymore ever again in order to be part of the sacred. That is a big delusion. So whether or not you know, every time we practice bowing, we are busting out of that trap of duality with our bodies not as another concept you know it's not like you open the manual and say okay here's how you bust through duality (laughs) no you do it and you don't know what the hell you're doing and you do it anyway because that's what the practice is here and that's what our ancestors have done now it's tricky to talk about although it's perfect to talk about because not every zen center or do they still call themselves zen centers i don't know I guess, actually I can't really confirm this. I know that there are some Zen centers who don't chant in Japanese, who don't wear robes, you know, like from the Indian, Chinese and Japanese traditions, who have gone full on American. But what is that? What is America? What is American? I mean, I'm Portuguese, man. (laughs) You know, I'm not just American. And some people wonder why I don't use my Dharma name. Myozen, Hoen Myozen, which is a very cool name. I don't use it because, well, partially um, because I connect coming to Zen practice with my own liberation from a preordained view, kind of cultural view of who I am. The rest of my family spells their last name wrong. (laughs) My last name is Portuguese, Amaral. It was a mistake when my grandfather arrived. The bank spelled it wrong. And my whole family continues with that mistake. You know, in some ways, it's not really a mistake. It's just what it is now. But it didn't work for me. And when I discovered what our last name is, it's a beautiful last name. Amaral is a beautiful last name. So that was enough for me (laughs) to, you know, when I um, took up my last name in San Francisco, somehow that's plenty some, I, i'm it's, it's not from here, I can't quite explain it. Maybe one of these days I will start going around as Mio Zen Amaral, but for now it's Joan Amaral. And that Amaral is Zen, is me coming into, me reaching through to grab my grandfather, you know, and my Portuguese people. You hear me talk a lot about being Portuguese. So that's much more important to me than whether or not we wear robes or, or, or not wearing robes and not chant and bow. You know, it's much deeper about what is it that we're doing here. So some Zen places, I think, may not be bowing, but you're in this guy's lineage. OK, by virtue of the fact that you're here, you're part of San Francisco Zen Center, Suzuki Roshi. So we're going to go to the source today. What Suzuki Roshi says about bowing. And this came up because I was on another tirade when I I just noticed what happens on Zoom. I would like to ask you to consider comportment on Zoom no different from comportment in the Zendo, in the physical Zendo. Now, some of you I know have pretty much only practiced on Zoom. So you think you can sneak around? True practice is seamless. You know, so to just consider this for yourself, I'm not going to tell you what to do, but I am going to invite you to consider the true freedom is, while we're on Zoom, it's wonderful that you get to come. And you get to have a little wiggle room, maybe for the first couple times when you're kind of freaked out and you can log off (laughs) or you can step outside (laughs) of being seen or you can just turn off your video. But eventually, that's going to be a trap if you keep sneaking around like that. Do on Zoom what you would do in the physical space. Because otherwise, when the physical space comes, it's going to be a cold shower for you. It's going to be too much of a shift. And I don't want that to happen. So I noticed last week that um, I, well, I want to say, I noticed how beautiful it is to see everybody in Gash show at the appointed time <laughs> and you can follow people who look like they know what they're doing. Some of them do know what they're doing. And, and to see people bowing and some people I could see bowing. It's just beautiful. There's a feeling of unity. It's not conformity. It can be conformity if you choose to see it that way. If you disempower yourself, if you free yourself, it's simply taking your place in the sacred. You get to choose. Um, So last week, I was really enjoying that. And I wanted to ask people as a check-in, what do you think is going on here? What is bowing? Just an important check-in. And so I've been thinking about this all week. And I wanted to just share a little bit more from Suzuki Roshi and then from a Sangha member about what, how they relate with bowing. But so here's Suzuki Roshi. I'm not going to read the whole chapter. This is in Zen Mind, Beginner's Mind on the section on bowing. So just listen up for a few minutes. Suzuki Roshi says, after Zazen, we bow to the floor nine times, just like we just did. By bowing, we are giving up ourselves. To give up ourselves means to give up are dualistic ideas. So there is no difference between zazen practice and bowing. There is no difference between zazen practice and bowing. If you want zen, give it up, give it over, drop down, bow. Usually to bow means to pay our respects to something which is more worthy of respect than ourselves. But When you bow to Buddha, when you bow here in this practice place, you should have no idea of Buddha. You should just become one with Buddha. You are already holding Buddha himself. Becoming one with Buddha looks like this, and holding Buddha looks like this, okay? That's the mudra for sitting. The cosmic mudra holding Buddha in your hands. You're already Buddha himself herself, themselves. When you become one with Buddha, one with everything that exists, you find the true meaning of being. When you forget all your dualistic ideas, everything becomes your teacher and everything can be the object of worship. I go like that because that's a word that came up the other day. I can't remember where it was, maybe in the welcome garden. When you forget all your dualistic ideas, everything becomes your teacher. I mentioned Shakyamuni Buddha earlier about he said on his deathbed, don't believe what I've said, find out for yourself. And some of you remember, he also said, from now on, after I'm gone, from now on, this bright world and everything in it is your teacher. Be a lamp unto yourselves. Everything in this world is your teacher. That's called being free of duality, being free of dualistic thinking. And then Roshi says, when everything exists within your big mind, all dualistic relationships drop away. There's no distinction between heaven and earth, man and woman, teacher and disciple, Buddha and hypocrite, con man. <laughs> um, And then he says, in your big mind, everything has the same value. Everything is Buddha himself. You see something or hear a sound, and there you have everything just as it is. In your practice, you should should accept everything as it is, giving to each thing the same respect given to a Buddha. Here there is Buddhahood, enlightenment, some people say. Then Buddha bows to Buddha, and you bow to yourself. This is the true bow. When you're bowing, when you're standing at an altar, or when you're bowing, you're bowing to you, yourself, and all beings, including Buddha. When you bow to Buddha, you're not, not bowing to yourself. When you bow to Buddha, you're bowing to all beings, and you're one of those beings. If you do not have this firm conviction of big mind in your practice, your bow will be dualistic. You'll think you're bowing to Buddha. You'll think you're engaging in some weird, you know, worship cult thing. But when you are just yourself, you bow to yourself in its true sense, and you are one with everything. Only when you yourself, only when you are you yourself, can you, can you bow to everything in its true sense. Only when you are you yourself, I would also add, can you be with everything and everyone without fear, without anxiety, without trying to fix them, or without feeling that they're going to try to fix you. You're just you yourself. And in doing so, you kind of show the way for others to just be themselves too. And then we can all just relax. (laughs) Bowing is a very serious practice. You should be prepared to bow even in your last moment when you cannot do anything except (laughs) bow. You should do it. Do you ever have that feeling in your life? When you're like, you're feeling screwed. When you're like, either you're crying or you're super angry or you feel abandoned or you feel nobody understands you. Or maybe you are about to take your last breath. You are about to die. Remember this. Bow. And as Emily said, as the Eno said earlier, what do you you say? It's something like, you know, we're going to offer nine bows to the best of your ability, whatever that looks like for you. Full nine bows. It might be all the way down, forehead touching. Ben, we talk about this on Tuesday evenings. We can break it down a little bit more for you what a full bow looks like. Head to the ground is what it feels like. Hands up. Hands up, head down. It's a gesture of, you know, I do think it's a gesture of respect, honoring, surrender. It is a gesture of um, not alone. You're not alone. Asking for help. Believing that help is there, you ask for help. It's very, very beneficial, very comforting in times of distress, And they're going to come to you to have this in your body-mind already, to have this as a place to go to. You may not actually offer the bow physically, but you will feel it inside. You should be prepared to bow even in your last moment. When you cannot do anything except bow, you should do it. This kind of conviction is necessary. Bow with the spirit and all the precepts, All the teachings are yours and you will possess everything within your big mind. We don't offer guarantees much, but there's one right there, (laughs) but it's a guarantee that requires your engagement. It's not a guarantee from the outside. I hear Blanche right now saying you get what you give. Okay. And then he goes on to talk about the four Bodhisattva vows Beings are numberless. I vow to save them. Delusions are inexhaustible. I still vow to end them. Dharma gates are boundless. Where are they? But I'm going to enter them. Buddha's way can't be surpassed. But I am going to become it. (laughs) You can either see that as arrogance or, or kind of crazy. Like, it's impossible. Beings are numberless. So who do you think you are trying to save them all? Um, Suzuki Roshi says, um, "Although Buddhism is unattainable, we vow to attain it. If it's unattainable, how can we attain it? But we should!" Exclamation point. That is Buddhism. That exclamation point is so important. It's the spirit of Zen. To think because it is possible, we will do it, is not Buddhism. And anybody who's been long, around long enough in this practice place knows we live by that. <laughs> because it's possible, we'll do it. <laughs> Even though it's impossible, we must do it. Because our true nature wants us to. But actually, whether or not it's possible is not the point. If it is our inmost desire and this is interesting language. I love it. This is a gracious. It, it if it is our inmost desire to get rid of our self-centered ideas, we have to do it. When we make this effort, our inmost desire is appeased and nirvana is there. I know you've heard about nirvana, but do you know what it is? It means ceasing the thrashing. And there's no shortcut to ceasing this thrashing, thrashing. although... It can happen right now, but that's not a shortcut. (laughs) Before you determine to do it, you have difficulty. But once you start to do it, you have none. Your effort appeases your inmost desire. There's no other way to attain calmness. Calmness of mind does not mean you should stop your activity. Real calmness should be found in activity itself. All right, and then he says, last thing, after you've practiced for a while, you will realize that it's not possible to make rapid, extraordinary progress. Sorry. (laughs) For those of you who've been around for a while and think that you're going somewhere (laughs) and that you're getting something. Even though you try very hard, the progress you make is always little by little. It's not like going out in a shower in which you know when you get wet. In a fog, you do not know you're getting wet, but as you keep walking, you get wet little by little. If your mind has ideas of progress, you may say, Oh, this pace is terrible. And maybe some of you are relating with that today. My parents are asking me, How's it going? And I'm just like, (laughs) You know, what can I say? I show up and I sit. But actually, this pace is not terrible. When you get wet in a fog, it's very difficult to dry yourself. So there's no need to worry about progress. It's like studying a foreign language. You can't do it all of a sudden, but by repeating it over and over, you'll master it. This is the Soto Zen way of practice. We can say that we either make progress little by little or that we do not even expect to make progress. Just to be sincere, and make our full effort in each moment is enough. There's no nirvana outside of our practice. Your practice itself is the cessation of suffering. Now the question is whether or not you'll make contact with that. You'll see that and experience it for yourself. You can't without actually showing up and doing it. So I really relate with this thing about the foreign language. You know, this is why they have immersive language programs. Eh, you know, we call it whatever, but just go to a place where they speak Spanish and just hang out with people who speak Spanish and preferably who don't speak any English at all. Immersion. Samadhi. No trying to get away. Just total willingness to be there. It's very interesting. It's very interesting to have your first fight in a foreign language. (laughs) You know, to express pain in a foreign language for the first time. To fall in love and express that in a foreign language. You learn so much about everything around the people who speak that language and how they live. And that's how you learn the language. Not just through the words, but the context of the words. And the feeling behind the words. Okay, so, all right, a couple things I want to point out before we... We go into pairs. And Ben, this is a very important part. This is where the Sangha is going to break it down for you. And you may be weirded out by what I say, but they're going to help you. You know, they'll warm it up. It'll be doable. It's a very important part of what we do, especially on Zoom. For each one of us, including you, Ben, to express the Dharma in your own way. Each one of you will do that when we pair up. Okay, so just a few thoughts. Oh, (laughs) just lose someone anyway a few thoughts I wanted to share four four thoughts about what Suzuki Roshi just shared and this is my dance with Suzuki Roshi you know this is how I'm relating with Suzuki Roshi this morning just from my own life so this you know giving up the first one is giving up dualistic ideas so this is this is about you know giving up dualistic ideas is dropping maybe some of you relate with this, dropping, thinking our way through our lives (laughs) as opposed to just simply living our lives. Thinking our way through our lives, having endless judgments and conclusions, continually comparing our life to someone else's, you know, um, being tyrannized by shoulds, by what, others' expectations might be. Maybe that's why it was so funny to feel that I was conning someone. Someone told me they were conning them. That's where a relationship can begin. Well, what expectations did you actually have of me? What did you think was going on here? What is the nature of our relationship? That's the beginning of a true relationship, to have that conversation. So it was very refreshing to hear that person share what she actually was, how she was actually receiving me. Um, So the second thing is this thing around effort. This is so important. Going back to religion, religious practice, there's nothing passive about it. And that's how we're saved from being, I know it's dangerous to use this word, but a cult, you know, or just simply an institution that does tithing or whatever, you know, that you raise money just to, you know, just to keep existing. But that we're, you know, we're, we're all part of creating what the Zen center is in an ongoing way. And we do that through our own practice, you know, at Tassajara at the monastery, not during the guest season in the summer necessarily, but that it would still apply during the monastic training period in the winter. It was like a felony to be caught in the staff office and not in the Zen To be caught working during Sazen time. To be caught working. We could always tell because the light would be on in the staff office. <laughs> no. The most important work, if you belong to a Zen center, and you all do, is your practice of Sazen. It's not a Zen center anymore if we're just falling into busyness. This was also one of the last things that the Buddha taught. He taught seven things to, he reminded his monks of seven things for them to, around their comportment, how to conduct themselves. And if they did these seven things, the Sangha could be expected to prosper and not decline. One of those seven things was not to fall into busyness. One of those seven things was to practice mindfulness every day. So this effort is very important, but its effort, you know, the effort of zazen is also Not effort in the usual dualistic, the usual worldly sense of effort. I'm working hard here. You know, when I said that, I clenched. No, the effort of Zazen is simply showing up and then continuing to show up for the 30 minutes in a period, in a state of willingness, a kind of whole bodied, whole minded willingness to just be right here with the thoughts that come up, the feelings that arise, and whoever else is here or not here. To just be right here. This kind of effort is profound. It's radical. Nothing about control and nothing about a contingency on external circumstances. So this is the point around what's possible and what's impossible. Those are just constructs. We don't know what's possible. So that's another, a second aspect of Zen spirit. That's extremely important and that we express in our bowing. It's, I mentioned this the other day at the the public library, where we all went out, because I was exposed to someone with COVID last weekend. And so I said that to them. And I found out a half an hour before we were supposed to meet in the library. And so I showed up, and I said this to them. And I had a mask on. And I said, so here are our choices. I could just go home. Or um, we could stay here. And we could just keep a distance in the room. Or we could go outside. And they chose to go outside. So we went outside. And as soon as we got to the lawn, the beautiful lawn of the Beverly Common. I remembered as we joined, as we formed a circle, it's like, oh, okay, here's our practice place. Our zendo's right here. And I reached down and picked up a blade of grass. This is right out of one of the stories. Shakyamuni Buddha is out walking with Indra. And someone says, oh, what a beautiful place. This would be a wonderful place to build a monastery a Shaakimini or someone picks up a blade of grass and plants it, and says, "There, the monastery is built." <laughs> so it's like this: we're not going to wait to find a physical practice, and then we start practice a uh, physical practice place, and then we start practicing right now, right here. As if you were in physical practice, would you really go off and get a snack during him During walking meditation. I mean, maybe you could, (laughs) you could, (laughs) but it would feel different. It would, you would have an impact on others. You would leave the space. We still feel it on Zoom. I just want you to know. Okay. The third thing I'm always talking about this. Um, Bowing offers is it's, it's obviously an opportunity to express something through the body. We don't necessarily know that in Zazen. My, my intention as a teacher, as a Zen teacher, is to encourage you to experience this non-dual awareness through the body. It's the only way to do that, to experience non-dual awareness. As soon as you start to fall into thoughts, it's immediately dualistic. The only way you can experience and express non-duality is through the body. So, bowing is an important checkpoint in whether or not your zazen is dualistic. So, please see it as like an intervention in a way, you know, when you're bowing. And eventually, you might actually experience the joy of bowing, the relief of bowing, the comfort of bowing. Maybe it for you right now is stretching the back, stretching the legs. It was so funny. I didn't bring this up with the, the group at the library on the lawn the other day. When I asked any questions, someone said, could we practice bowing? It was so wild. It's just like it's in the air this week. And so we did right there on the grass. And it was so good. It was so beautiful to feel the grass on my forehead, you know, and to smell the earth. So it's a way that we, um, in the tidiness of Zen, we kind of shake that up, especially with the nine boughs your heart rate should go up. You know, you should, you might even break a sweat, especially in the full moon ceremony that we have coming up on Wednesday, which will be in the welcome garden. You'll be able to do it in person. We'll have the zoom option as well. But, um, Oh, and I, I don't know if you'll be bowing or not anyway. Okay. Maybe not. <laughs> um, but when we're offering these full bows, especially a series of full bows, lucky you if your hair is a mess. <laughs> lucky you if you feel like your clothing is in disarray. That's part of it, shaking up this tidiness. This tidiness of a Zen center is because we know what a hot mess human life is. It's important to feel some dignity. <laughs> you know, some tranquility, some, you know, some serenity. Okay, the fourth point, the word is equanimity. When Suzuki Roshi is talking about the non-dual aspect of bowing, Buddha bowing to Buddha. There's no sacred over here and then profane over here. There's just... Seeing everything with equal value. Of course, there's difference. But each thing, each activity, each person, each thought moment, equal value. This is your life. Someone once asked Suzuki Roshi, what do you do in your free time? And he just howled with laughter. Like, free time? Like what? When am I not free? When is my time not free? You know, or um, the way some of us might relate with work, with our jobs. You know, when we say things like, <clears throat> um, oh, I don't know, working for the weekend. <laughs> <Whatever>. <laughs> Friday night comes around and time to get drunk. I don't know. I mean, I enjoy having a glass of wine or whatever. I'm not trying to be pious here, but there, always, there is something always like, huh. Is it like you can really come to life on the weekend and during the week, you know, you're just trying to get by? You're just trying to, like, what is that? It's really important to take a look. Some of us, when we come to Zen practice, we might actually change our jobs. This is a very important thing to look at. Um, Or the other thing that people fall into, which is going into a Zendo. I love it when people say, But what about when I leave the Zendo and I have to go back into real life? What is that? (laughs) I'm like, what? What are we potted plants here? Are we not real in the Zendo? What's real and what's not real? So this equanimity, seeing everything as equal value, even if you have a low-income job, see that as an opportunity to be a Bodhisattva, to make your offering in the world, to own it with dignity. This is why I'm so proud that in the Zen tradition, the cook is, a, is, a, is a, a venerable position. My grandfather, by the way, the Portuguese immigrant, was a cook, I, I wish I could have talked to him about this. Anyway, um, and this equanimity, it's important to say, seeing everything with equal value, including like when you're in a fight or when you feel, you know, like deeply hurt by something. Seeing that with equal value doesn't mean you don't feel hurt. You don't feel pain, but there is a difference. And I feel it in myself. I was in deep pain yesterday. There were a few things happening and I could feel, I will share with you that even in the midst of my pain, I was feeling okay. Like, all right, what is happening here? What is the invitation? How am I growing here in this feeling of, distress. It's very important to say that. This practice is not going to save you from ever being hurt again. You will get hurt. But I do feel, I do feel I can say to you that if you keep up with the practice, if you maintain a regular practice for the rest of your life and beyond, something will shift there with how you relate to the pain that you feel, the pain that's just a natural part of being alive. Thank you, Ben, for that nod. <laughs> I'm feeling you. <laughs> See? It is possible to break through the two dimensions. Okay, so this equanimity—if I haven't hammered the point—the point home here—I just want to do say that um, equanimity. For those of you who want to geek out on the list, the four Brahma Viharas. The last one is equanimity. You know, loving kindness, um, compassion. Appreciative joy, sympathetic joy, appreciation, and then the fourth one, equanimity. Each one of those four has a near enemy. We've talked about this before. The, the near enemy of compassion, for instance, this is the one we might most viscerally feel. The near enemy of compassion is pity. You know, wanting to help the poor, <laughs> the homeless. I like how we say now, unhoused folks. You know, people who could be people we love. And why don't we just love them? You know, as opposed to those poor people over there. That's the near enemy of compassion, pitying. It's a, it's a feeling that the people who are the recipient of that so-called compassion can feel the difference when it's pity, when you're trying to help that poor person down there, as opposed to another human being, just simply that, another human being. The near enemy of equanimity is, you know, the near end. So this equanimity as seeing everything with equal value, the near enemy of equanimity is not caring or some kind of spiritual bypassing. So you could fall into the, an idea of equanimity as, Oh, well, you know, homeless person and, or an unhoused person, or, you know, me in my palatial estate, which is not where I am, by the way, you know, no difference. I can see that with equanimity. No, it doesn't. There is a difference. <laughs> it doesn't mean you don't write the check to the nearest shelter. You know, it doesn't mean you don't engage. It doesn't mean that there, there isn't a difference. Um, so maybe you get my point. So simply this equanimity that we get to experience in bowing as seeing everything with equal value seeing the joy of um, a party, like a birthday party and feeling appreciated, you know, if it's your birthday and you feel appreciated, there's a way in which we might see that equally. And this might be a stretch as equally beneficial to our heart as a difficult encounter with someone. If we're committed to living as a bodhisattva, which means being in solidarity with everyone without exception. We might see the times that we're in pain as an opportunity to remember what it feels like to be in pain. And maybe we can be more ardently there for someone else the next time they're in pain. Okay, so... um, this bowing is just an invitation. It's simply an invitation. Get out of the head, get into the body to explore. I've planted many seeds here this morning. Don't worry about it. It's in there. You don't have to memorize this. You don't have to remember anything. Besides, the longer you stick around, the more you see that I say the same thing over and over again. I try to give different stories, but I do have a, different, a little different story this morning that I want to share with you. It comes from a Sangha member who again in the last week, just on their own, brought up bowing and brought up bowing <laughs> in, a, in a really visceral way, okay? So, um, you know, there is some truth to when we encounter as human beings, the inevitability of old age, sickness and death If we don't turn away from that, those situations, those predicaments, we have the opportunity to go deep into the Dharma, to really make contact with our own Dharma. And if we can share it with others, it's so helpful. So for instance, this one person is dealing with a very serious illness, which is degenerative and they are experiencing various um, activities that they used to be able to do that they can't do anymore. And, you know, we don't know, we don't know. I mean, it does seem like it's going in a direction where it's, it's a decline, that they're able to do less and less with their physical body. And so they said the other day, um, about bowing that they're not able and the more you get to know me I'm Portuguese and I cry and I actually love to cry and people around here are used to that this is so moving to me this person right now anyway and maybe not again can't bow Is not able to bow. Is not able to go all the way down to the ground. And raise their hands up. And touch their forehead to the ground. They used to be able to do this. I bowed with them years ago. God can't do that anymore. And the way this person is taking this up. As Dharma. Because they're bodhisattva like okay well what's the invitation here what's the opportunity one of course what can you do my own teacher couldn't offer a full bow she had rheumatoid arthritis so she did a standing bow but in standing her her forehead almost touched the ground it was amazing that's what she was able to do if she went all the way she couldn't go all the way down on her knees so she modified it and we felt the non-duality, we felt it shining through in her bow. That's what she could do. And so this person might be doing that, or they might simply, you know, with a person like this, you really feel their gusho. And each one of you, each one of us must practice our gusho in this way, that our whole life is here in our gusho. The second thing though, that they said, was remembering what it was like to bow, to offer full bows. That it was like um, entering a space, being in a space of vastness, connecting with something much bigger than that. When they said this, I was in my car and uh, on Bluetooth, they were telling me over the phone and I had just gotten off the beach and I'm sweaty and I'm covered with sand. And, <laughs> and there it is, boom, right between the eyes, right into my heart. Bowing. Couldn't be said better. Said much. What Suzuki Roshi said was pretty good, but what this person said went right in. I hope this for all of us while we still have the opportunity to feel the invitation of bowing as making contact with something much greater than us and where we also belong. It's not separate from us. It's right here with us. That vastness is us. Okay, so thank you to the Sangha member. Thank you for Sangha. Thank you for the triple treasure because by the way, I don't know, this person wouldn't have been able to experience this without you. So thank you. Okay. And now we shall, I went longer than I wanted to, but let's take, let's take five minutes. And even if you've never bowed in your life, what comes up for you when you think about bowing? Um, what comes up for those of you who do bow, uh, How do you relate with bowing? What is bowing? Okay, so five minutes and then we'll come back just for a minute with a larger group. Thank you so much. Okay, everybody, welcome back. Yeah, Julia, I meant, Julia and I were paired up. I meant just in the last few seconds, I just like to not fill it with chatter and just enjoy looking at you, (laughs) you know? Anyway, I'm so glad that we had a chance to to talk to each other. Anybody want to share anything with the bigger group? Anything come up? You'd like to share anything surprising that you found yourself saying? Yes, Saitetsu. Well, I... It was funny because I, I I actually got up and did some bowing <laughs> <laughs> because I was paired with Ben <laughs> just to kind of describe what it actually you know the mechanics of it. But mm-hmm. um, what I shared, which is true, is that I I remember when I first started doing the bowing in the zendo. You know, it's it's kind of a funny practice the first you know, encountering it. But um, but I've come to just love it so much. Uh, and I, I've gotten stronger at it. So that's what I share. Thank you, soon. Yeah. Yeah, you know, maybe I should clarify, because maybe not everybody knows Chris, but I'm having a little echo of saying, did I say like a guy like Chris doing gusho? show. Did I say that? A guy like Chris?
0: You did. I felt called out.
1: <laughs> no, Chris, what I wanted what I to clarify cuz I know Chris works out. You lift you lift weights, is that what you call it? Like he's like a mm, a strong, you know, physically strong mm-hmm. guy. And so and here he is offering bows. It's just cool. It's like we're not one trick ponies, you know? And I love this I love having these different aspects, you know, like I'm not going to, you know, walk into Salem five bank and offer a full (laughs) bows. you know, it's not like, you know, there's a place and a time for things, but still I think the practice of bowing does make a difference in how I walk into Salem five and how I engage with the people who work there. Um, So it's, it's just really cool to not stay stuck in a, you know, these fixed identities that we think we're supposed to carry around with us and uphold throughout our whole lives. Um, Anybody else want to say anything? Yeah, Emily. I was
0: just saying to Rob when, right before we were exiting that I always, I was coming back to that word um, unity that you said, Joan, and appreciating so much. Like I've, it's such a relief to feel coordinated with others in that way that when, when you do feel that and i do feel it through the screen i mean there is a way to sort of pace ourselves you know i'm sort of always watching you john and then feeling other people in the morning during the week and it's just such a beautiful thing but it's actually a relief to just not have it be about me to just join that with others is so supportive and I think I feel it really deeply. I was telling Rob because I did have a hugely long period of a year and however many months when I just wasn't bowing and to then realize there was a point, you know, kind of like, okay, yeah, I need to, there's something about activity and stillness that does need to be in conversation. And I feel weird because I'm not bowing. And yeah, the truth of that, but mostly just not feeling unified with others and then just feeling the deep relief of being in that, connection is so wonderful and helpful and supportive. Yeah.
1: Thank you, Emily. Thank you very much. It is true. And Emily, as the Eno, um, training, teaching people, offering instruction on the forms, what's called the forms of this practice, like bowing, when you put your hands in gasho, how to ring the bell, um, leading the chanting, these are, all, these are all opportunities, just excuses, another way of being with each other, another way of being with other human beings. So this is why when people ask me if I miss dancing, I say, no, I'm still dancing. This is what it looks like. You know, that joy of doing the same thing at the same time. This is the dance of bowing, of feeling, you know, the body connected with other bodies, even on Zoom. So there, there is relief. Is a beautiful word. Comfort, accompaniment, connection, enjoyment. Yeah, all of that. And it's a deep intimacy. It's a deep intimate relationship with me as the doshi, with the on. You know, we're in, we're aware of each other, and the kokio, the chant leader, with the on, the person ringing the bell. Deep connection. It will change the way you relate with other people. It's, this is this is lover training. It's like paying attention to intention and impact. You know, it's beautiful considering others. Wow. What a concept.
0: (laughs) We hope you enjoyed this episode. This podcast is made possible by donations from listeners like you. For more information or to donate, please go to www.zencenternorthshore.org. Thank you.